And because of that confluence of two different cultures, they have their own third culture experience. They're not one fully or the other fully. Some learn another language, some don't. Some live a longer time, some move from place to place. Whether they're, immigra uh, whether they're immigrants or missionary kids or sons and daughters of diplomats or army brats, as they call them, those TCKs are highly adaptable, culturally adept, often bilingual or trilingual in my case, resilient, but sometimes they struggle with a sense of where do I really belong? So that comes with one of the downsides. So as you can see, the simple question that somebody might make to me, where are you from, is not an easy question to answer. It has a complicated answer in my case, and that's true for my whole family. Well, over New Year's, take a look at the photo. Over New Year's, <clears throat> our family, <clears throat> we went on and uh, they came to Fort Myers, where my mother lives. We're living on home assignment this year in Fort Myers near my mother, where she's retired. And our daughters and their spouses and my siblings all came for New Year's. And some of us went on an airboat ride. The last day that we were here, we pushed it off because the weather was not very nice. Why is that? I'm here in Florida, and the weather was terrible over Christmas. It was rainy and cold. In fact, the morning we went on this airboat, it was 43 degrees and raining in the Everglades. So we, got, we went because we were desperate. It was our last chance. So our pilot, Robbie, the guy in the middle, is something right out of Duck Dynasty, only double, right? And he was. I mean, he'd just gone duck hunting that morning, in fact. And he was quite the guy, very nice. And when we stopped in the middle of the mangroves and the marshes to see an alligator while the, he turned the airboat off and we had our earphones, our headphones taken off, he asked this question, where are y'all from? Well, he could not have expected our response. The family on the front row of our airboat were from Nova Scotia. Let me see if I have the, I got to point it here, don't I? How do I get this to not working? Do I need to turn it on? That'll help, won't it? There we go. Let's try this. Well, there's another. Can you pass it on, Brian, to the next one? Since I'm not getting. This one? Ah. <laughs> there we go. So the family on the first row said, Nova Scotia from Canada. And then one by one, my family began to speak. My son-in-law called out South Korea. My daughter, one of my daughters said Spain. She was born in Spain. My sister said Malaysia. That's where she lives as a missionary. My other son-in-law said the Netherlands, where he's from. One of my other daughters who lives in Nicaragua said Nicaragua. My other daughter who lives in Liverpool with her Dutch husband said Liverpool, England. My wife and I I said Hong Kong, and then Marilyn called out, Goshen, Indiana. <laughs> For, he, he grabbed on to Indiana. Oh, you're a Hoosier. He did not know what to do with the rest of it. He could not have expected that on his boat this morning that he would have the United Nations. Robbie was a good guy. He gave us a great boat ride, but he didn't know what to do. Where are you from? Or where do you come from? That's a simple, often natural and sincere question when we face someone who doesn't look like us, Right? But sometimes that question can be dangerous. If we aren't really listening, it can come across as just an effort to pigeonhole someone. And even more so, it can sometimes come across as a question that, not seeks to, that does not seek to welcome, but to separate. As if to say in the asking, you're not from around here, are you? 
And that question can hurt. It hurts in Spain, too. In Spain, we have five different official languages. Our identity differences are mostly linguistic in Spain. Not so much based on the color of the skin, except for the gypsies that we have. But resentment and political power can run more than skin deep, even if the skin is all the same color. How many of you heard, have heard in the fall of the scuffle that there is in Spain about the attempt of Catalonia in Barcelona to separate from Spain? Have you guys followed the news on that? Well, you're going to hear about it again this year, okay? We had elections that had to step in. It was a whole mess, but it's going to come back. Historically in Spain, one's emotional allegiance to his or her region and language and food has always been more important than the national sense of patriotism. Because we have five languages, as I said. We have different regions that over the years in the past, because of mountains, were separated. So we have these, what they call patria chica. Patria nacional is the national sense of pride, what people admire about the United States. Spaniards admire about it, admire us for it. But the sense of patria chica is my region, my part of Spain, my town, my homeland, my food from Valencia or from Barcelona or from Santiago de Compostela or from Granada or from Sevilla. Anybody travel to Spain? Okay, then you know what I'm talking about. Only since 2010, when we finally won the World Soccer Cup, was there a sense of national pride and the flag was flown. But the current wave of Catalan nationalism it's a separate language and a separate people, is fueled by a mix of this regional pride, this sense of patria chica, as well as resentment toward the central government, which some of you can understand, anti-capitalism, and then those who favor a republic instead of a parliamentary monarchy, constitutional monarchy, which we have. Cultural identity politics threatens to tear Spain apart. Does that sound familiar? In times of economic and social upheaval, too many are battling others based on where they're from or what language they prefer, as in Spain's case. Each side claims rights based on their special identity under a banner emblazoned with the same word that our banners too often bear, me, me or myself and my family, myself and my religion, myself and my race, myself and my, today, gender which is all really just myself writ large on a big t-shirt. We all have origin stories. We all have ethnic identities that give us a sense of security and belonging. But sometimes those cultural identities, when they become too important, especially for us as Christians, can keep us from connecting with others. And in humanity, we see that they can keep us from seeing others as fully human. That's been a plague in our, our history of our country. One creative Brit named Chitan Bhatt let me see if I got this here. Yeah, oh, I got to go the other way. Sorry about <clears throat> one, um, one creative Br British guy named Chitan Bhatt has said that it's time to change the question from where are you from to where are you going? If we're all British and we're all part of this national project, it's finding out what people dream of, where they want to head, what they want to do is more important than where they are from, especially in the context today. And I believe that we can brace this question as Christians. I'm going to show you from the scriptures this morning. We need this new narrative, this kind of question, where are you going? Where are you headed to guide our community building? In this church, I believe. What we've all experienced personally in Jesus Christ and where we're all going is what brings us together. We sang this morning, 
that his love is overwhelming. His love is what has touched us and what has changed us. And that should be the dominant identity and priority. Where we're all headed is what binds us together, not where we're from. Our future hope should drive how we treat one another more than our hometown, more than our racial pedigree, and more than our heritage. That needs to be the driving force. The scandal of the gospel of Jesus we're going to see today is that it subsumes puts under cultural identity under God's cosmic purposes, his mission to the world. Who we are in Christ should be our primary understanding of each one of us and of all us together. The teaching is that our most essential identity cannot be racial, sexual, ethnic, linguistic, or national. We are all part of another reality. We are all citizens of heaven who eagerly await what? Our Lord Jesus Christ to return. Where we're headed, where we're all going because of what Jesus has done in all of us should be what drives all of our decisions and how we treat each other and how we view our context and our purpose in this world. We are all, in fact, expatriates. We're not living in the land that we desire. We are all, in fact, third culture children. We live as a part of one culture, but we also have been transported and transformed by the Holy Spirit into another culture, God's family. And we live in the confluence of those two things. We are all, spiritually speaking, expatriates, resident aliens, as I'm going to say today, temporary residents. We have all put on a new nature. Does it not say in Colossians, where there is no Jew nor Greek, nor circumcised or uncircumcised, Scythian, barbarian, slave or free, but Christ is all and is in all. Amen? That is our identity. We are all, spiritually speaking, expatriates. And I'm going to say today and try to show you that, dear people of God, we can only fulfill God's purposes for us, three of them that I'm going to show you today, if we live as if we were resident aliens or temporary residents on this earth. Well, let's take a look. So, the text starts out by saying, as you come to him, the Lord Jesus. We're going to read the whole text in a minute, but I just want to focus on the first line. As you come to him, in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 4, as you come to him, as you come to him, the Lord Jesus. Who's the you? Now, when we read the scriptures, we need to figure out right away, not assume that the you is us to start with. We need to find out, who was Peter talking to? Who's the you here? So let's discover who's the you, and that's why I want to show you that we're all resident aliens. In reading the New Testament letter, we only have to turn to the beginning, where both the recipient and the author are usually identified. So go back with me quickly to chapter 1, verse 1. What does it say? It says, to those who reside as foreigners or strangers dispersed, God's elect in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. That's all part of what is now Turkey. Chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father and set apart by the Spirit for obedience and for sprinkling with the blood of Jesus Christ. So that you is literally people who were Jews, displaced Christians, Messianic Jews, people who had seen Christ as Savior, displaced, forced out of where they were from and living among a foreign people, living among another people. There were also, in this book, Peter is speaking to Hey, uh, Gentile Christians, Christians who were slaves, who were indentured servants, some of them wealthy, most of them not. This ragtag bunch of people that Peter is speaking to, some of them were literally dispersed resident aliens, exiles, other translations say. The King James Version says strangers and pilgrims. 
Strangers and pilgrims. The New English Bible talks about aliens, resident aliens, the word that I've been using. Peter envisions the life of God's people on this earth as temporary living in a foreign land. Now, to, to confirm that, if you look at in 117, what does it say? It says, since you call on a father who judges all men equally, live your time here as resident aliens in reverence, as sojourners. So he conceives of the Christian life, not only as literally are you exiles, literally are you resident aliens. He's saying your life here spiritually is a sojourn. You're on a journey toward a better land. So live in such a way. And then he repeats it when we get to our, um, sorry, shouldn't have done that. When we get to our passage here in chapter 2, as we'll see, he says, so I call you beloved to abstain from fleshly lusts, from those passions, because you are sojourners and pilgrims, because you are resident aliens and temporary dwellers. So he highlights it in this passage, as we're going to see. Now, Peter's applying ideas about the Old Testament people of God now to this New Testament people of God. People in the old pact, the old covenant, now we're a part of the new covenant. It's take, language taken right out of Exodus. If you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, what does it say? You will be my treasured possession among all the peoples of the earth. We're going to see that he calls them his treasured possession. So we see this, that he's addressing the believers in Jesus who are scattered around the Roman Empire as pilgrims and resident aliens. Someone living among others as a temporary dweller as a non-citizen with limited rights. Now, Paul used the same language. We're going to see it in his letters, and we're going to see that the preacher of Hebrews, if it was Paul or someone else, also uses the same language. Paul used the same words in Ephesians 2.19, but the other way around. He said, we are no longer foreigners and strangers to God, but fellow citizens in God's household, 2.19. So now we've been transported into a new citizenship, and so we're strangers and foreigners on the earth, not to God. So would you stand with me, and we're going to read the text. I want to read the passage, and then we'll get at it. Long introduction, the points will be shorter, but I needed to give you context and who I am so that you know where I'm coming from. As you come to him, oh, I should put the text up there. As you come to him, the Lord Jesus, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious. You yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood in order to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in Scripture, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. That's what Pastor said this morning. Whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. If we build our life on his love, his firm foundation, we will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe, but for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. Is Jesus a rock of offense today in our culture? He certainly is. They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. That's a hard word. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, and I should be switching, a holy nation, a people, belonging to God for his own possession so that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of the darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Beloved, I urge you as pilgrims and expatriates 
as temporary dwellers, as resident aliens, to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the nations honorable so that then when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father, God, on the day of his visitation. Amen. You may be seated. The key overarching, the key to the teaching of Peter in chapter 2 is to assure the dispersed and diverse and disenfranchised followers of Jesus of their real value to God, their real identity. Not based on where they're from, but where they are going, the day of God's visitation. Now, these believers certainly felt out of place in the pagan culture in which they lived in the Roman cities. Peter points out to them that God has a purpose for this dispersion. As Christ's followers, they choose to live for the kingdom among the kingdoms of the world. We operate, not from, we operate from weakness, not from legal strength as foreign residents. But despite what you feel, and despite how that doesn't feel right, he's saying to them, God sees you as his prized possession, and you should see yourself that way. So resident aliens and exiles are a prized and purchased people. So you yourselves, like living stones, you are a holy priesthood. He's using the language of the Old Testament to apply it to this new covenant people, this new pact. He said you are special in God's eyes. Now, dear people of God, I believe we can only fulfill three purposes God has for us if we live as if we were resident aliens. Some of us have it easy because we are literally resident aliens. Some of us are literally people who have been forced to learn another culture, another language. We've been put through that awkwardness of living in a state of uncertainty. But we should all be living like that as spiritual believers. We should all be living with a sense of the urgency that this world is not my home. I'm just a passing through. Those three purposes. The first one is resident aliens and expatriates have a priestly purpose among the peoples of the earth. We have a priestly purpose. He's applying the covenant theology to the new He's saying, oh, where's the, where's my, I missed one. Oh, I left one out. Okay, well, he's saying, um, in Exodus 19, he said, you are my treasured possession. I called you out of the nations. And he's applying that here. You are a holy nation, a priesthood of believers. For what purpose? What does it say? To offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, what are those spiritual sacrifices? What's the most obvious spiritual sacrifice? What do we do here this morning? What have we done this morning? Through in the name of Jesus, we have lifted sacrifices of praise. That's obvious. If we look at Hebrews, Hebrews uh, chapter 13 very quickly, what does it say here? It says in Hebrews chapter 13, um, for here we have no permanent home, but we are seekers after a city which is to come. In verse 14. And then he says, through Jesus, then let us continually offer up to God the sacrifices of praise that is the tribute of lips which acknowledge his name and never forget to show kindness and to share what you have with others. For such are the sacrifices of which God approves. He says earlier in that same passage, he opens up chapter 13 by saying, remember to show hospitality. And then he picks it up again, to share what you have and to show kindness. Brothers and sisters, We are called to speak out 
words of praise. But that sacrifice is not just words. That sacrifice are actions. What do we just see? Kindness and sharing what you have. In another passage, it says, whatever you do in word or deed, do it all in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, right? Giving thanks to God the Father through, um, through Jesus. And so this is our calling. And whatever we do, that's one of the problems we have in Spain. My friends that are Spaniards, most of them are, have uh, left any sense of faith. Obviously, they're historically is Roman Catholicism. Most of them uh, want nothing to do with it. And those that do uh, attend Mass, unfortunately, they have a vision of their spirituality that goes like this. What I do for 40 minutes on Sunday morning, that is my service to God. But what happens there religiously has nothing to do with the rest of my life. It doesn't inform how I spend my money, how I treat my children, what I watch on TV, where I go on the internet. But we have a conception that yes, based on this kind of verse and also Romans 12, I appeal to you that you offer your bodies as living sacrifices. That's the nature of what we're called to. And if we live like resident aliens, we understand that all we have and all we are belongs to God. The problem is, is when we live like settled folks, live like entitled folks, we think that we're owed or we think that it's all ours. One of the problems, if we don't change to have that spiritual idea that we are citizens of heaven first of all, that that's our primary identity, then those priorities affect everything else we do. But if we put our identity on the earth as more important and we attach to it, oh, I'm a Christian too, then it doesn't necessarily go the other way. It doesn't inform it. That priority of who we are as resident aliens, as temporary dwellers, as people looking for a better country, that should be the primary identity that drives us in how we spend our money, where we go on the internet, how we treat our children. It should affect our priorities. It's hard for them to understand. There's a dualism between what is sacred and what is secular. We need to be careful. Everything we do in word and deed is a spiritual sacrifice. Everything that we do in the name of the Lord Jesus is a spiritual, that's our priestly calling as resident aliens to be different, to be distinctive in the way we live our lives. When we enter a house, we say, peace be on this house. We pray for the person. We don't mediate as priests, we don't mediate grace. God mediates his grace by his Holy Spirit directly, but we do bless. We do exist on this earth to bless others and to proclaim, as we're going to see, to bless them. One of, the, one of the major ways, and I want to share this with you, what do, how do we do that? In a culture that's not open to spiritual things like Spain, in a culture that's rejected what they understand to be Christianity, how do we establish, how do I show sacrifices of praise to my friends? By living a life with integrity, as we're going to see. One of the ways that we can, though, is to pray for people. And I'll tell you about that in a moment. I'm going to add that on to this next point. So, first of all, we have a priestly purpose if we live as resident aliens and temporary dwellers. Secondly, we are this royal priesthood, this holy nation, this crescendo of ideas that he uses, metaphors to describe us. For, to what purpose? So that you may proclaim the excellency of him who called us. So we're called to speak out. We are called not just to live well, but to speak out. Now, this is important. This proclamation here, this word announcing, is not so much preaching or apologetics, it's speaking good about God, speaking well of God to everyone we meet. The things that you said to God today, you can say to others, God has been merciful to me. I feel loved by God. 
Those are things you can tell other people. You can talk up God. It's more, what he's, what is he, what he's saying here, where excellencies is a word that's used for God's glory, speaking of his glory to others. Now, it's important. It's more like telling people about a good movie or a good book we've seen than it is telling them that if you don't do this, you're going to end up bad. It's more like a, a recommendation than it is a public service announcement. You know the public service announcements where they want, don't want to take drugs or to drive drunk, right? So they show some pretty tragic consequences on the screen to persuade us. That's one aspect and one way that God calls us in a moment of time to speak into somebody's life. But most of the time, as we see here, what it's saying to us is that we're to call to proclaim out, to speak out with gratitude from personal experience what God has done for me. Christ is enough for me. He restored my broken heart. He gives me hope. He brought light into my darkness. You can tell people about your experience with God. That you can do. You may not be able to go toe-to-toe -to -toe with Jehovah's Witness. You may not be able to explain or answer difficult questions that your coworker makes of you or his scoffing of your faith, but you can speak about what you have experienced in God and how good he has been to you. You can proclaim his excellencies. We can all do that, and we should. <clears throat> One of the ways that I do this, without being preachy, because Spaniards, for 500 years, the Catholic Church had the pulpit, as it were. They had a bully pulpit. And the state and the church were one thing. And so you had to believe. You had to go to Mass. You had to name your children after one of the saints in the saints book, the Santoral. Now, in 1978, when that finished, when Franco died in 75, and we gained a non-confessional state, now every Spaniard's creed is, I can say my opinion about any subject to any person at any time in any way that I please. And no one is ever going to take that right away from me again. So they're very opinionated and very quick to say what they feel, and very direct. And they tell me what they think of my country, <laughs> and they tell me what they think of our politics, and they tell me what they think of, but they like me, because Spaniards also give a fair shake. If you are open and quick to respond and to speak openly and to defend your point of view, they like you, because they, if you have the right to speak, if I have the right to say what I feel, you have the right to say what you feel. So political correctness is really not a part of Spain, which I like as an extrovert. Because after I listen to them gripe about what they're griping about, I can share with them what I think about things, and they'll listen. But one of the most effective ways I've found is not to talk theology or explain or try to convince. One of the best ways and most powerful ways that I've moved into people's life is by praying for them. Not by praying for them just in my apartment, but by praying for them wherever I am in that moment with them. Let me explain what I mean. And it's, it, it's, it takes a little bit of daring, but if you have a relationship with someone, so I'll run into somebody at the butcher. We shop for groceries almost every day in Spain. That's how we do things. We, we have big supermarkets too, but most people still buy their food every day and make their food every day, which I like. Anyway, you go on an errand, you run into somebody on the street, because our town is a walking town. I can walk to church, I can walk to work. Everything was within four kilometers. So it's a, it's a different conception of life than we have here in the States, where everything is car-driven. In most cities and towns, everything is public transportation driven or walking driven. And Spaniards love to take walks. And so when I walk to work in the morning or when I walk to church, I run into people and somebody will share a need they have. My son is having an exam or my daughter's not doing well. And I'll say, can I pray for you? And they'll say, yes. And they think what I mean is I'm going to go to mass on Sunday morning or what they think is my mass on Sunday morning and rezar, pray for them. Well, as a matter of fact, no, I say, no, I want to pray for you right now. And that's an awkward moment, isn't it? But I believe in embracing the awkward moments. 
And so I say, I just want to, I want to pray for you. And they'll say, yes. I've only had one person turn me down in all the years I've been in Spain. Because even if they think it's stupid, or even if they don't believe what I believe, at least they know I care when I stop to say, can I pray for you? And so I pray, Lord Jesus, Consuelo has a real problem with her husband, or Consuelo is really concerned about her son, or Consuelo, Lord, is having a difficult time with this. Would you please help her? I'm your child, and I come to you asking on her behalf that you help her and meet her need. In the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, amen. Now, through that simple act, I am communicating a whole bunch of things to her. I'm communicating that I believe God hears me, that he's real, that he cares about what's going on. I believe that he's close, that he responds. And even if they think I'm talking to the air, they know I care about them. So I, as a priestly person, as a temporary resident on this world, as an, with a conscious awareness that this world is not all there is, I enter that other realm with them briefly. And whether they know it or not, whether the Holy Spirit touches their heart in that moment or not, it's a moment for me to share with them what I believe about God, that God cares, he's close. Marilyn's friend, one of her close friends, Daphne, has made this progress through her life. One of the most dramatic times was through her life. One night she shared with us after choir that uh, her, her, one of her good friends from high school, they went to a, a, what do you call it, a revival rock, you know, a rock band from 20 years ago. She's my age. And they all went as friends and they met up again and she found out that one of her friends, Jose, is, is, has, a, has a schizophrenia. So he showed up and he was loopy and she was, didn't know what to do with that. She didn't know what to do with this person who had a psychotic break. So she came and shared with a couple of us at choir. It was a very awkward moment. She said, I don't know, Jose, it was so hard. And, she was, and nobody knew what to say. Fortunately, I got to ride home with her in the car. I ride with her and another person uh, back, back from choir practice. And when the other person got out of the car, I said, Daphne, can I pray for you? Now, she's an atheist. So I, she said, yes. I'm sure it was just to make me feel good. So I prayed. As I said to you, I prayed for Jose. I pray for Daphne to know how to love him as a friend. The next morning, Daphne called me, Saturday morning. She said, Tim, can you come over here right now? My husband wants to kill me. Turns out that she had been involved in, in a relationship outside of her marriage, and her husband found out that very night before. And he was literally, he's Slovakian, and they believe in carrying arms like we do, and so if he had had one, fortunately in Spain you can't, he would have killed her, I think. He was so, he was livid. He was, so we went over there, Marilyn and I, to, to solve, to save her life, and, and we began a relationship with him over the next year of doing marital counseling. And Marian, her husband, came to Christ, and so did his two children. Daphne has not yet. But I want to say to you that when later on she told me, I didn't know who to turn to, but I knew that you that act of speaking into her life, praying for her, even when she doesn't believe in God and doesn't believe what I'm doing, she knows that I care, that I'm different, that I, I don't live in just a realm of this world and me and myself and my problems, but I believe that there's a God who cares about our problems and intervenes. That's how we are to live. Do we live with that kind of awareness? Do we live with that kind of double culture in us? Or are we just simply Americans who believe something that it's a preference we have? and it's different than other people's preference. Do we exude the sense that we are part of another culture, that we belong somewhere else? All of us are on mission, and all of us must live with that identity that we are expatriates, 
longing for a better country. And if you don't long for that better country, then you better get about doing it. Because otherwise, you're just another American that has other preferences. And that doesn't mean a hill of beans today. Everybody in their own little corner, doing their own little thing, grabbing for their own little rights. But we are agents of God. All right, I'm shooting my wad here. Oh, wow, was that really that late? Okay, let me turn, let me end. So, pilgrims, we proclaim and we must live exemplary lives. The final one it says here, just to say, so that they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of his visitation. Abstain from passions of the flesh. The major motivation to guard ourselves from the passions of our culture is so that we can live as resident aliens. So that we're not sucked into gluttony, consumerism, laziness, power, individualism, image, racism, eroticism, nationalism, as, as opposed to patriotism. We must live as temporary residents and aliens on this earth so that we can mark a difference. So brothers and sisters, it's not about where we are from, it's about where we're headed. Do we understand that? Do we live with that sense of, I am an American, or I am an American immigrant, or I am a resident alien, literally, but all of us with that sense that we are just temporary dwellers? Do we live with that sense of urgency? And I want to close with this passage from Hebrews chapter 11. Because Abraham and Enoch and Abel and Sarah and Isaac and Jacob lived with this. Hebrews 11, 15, 13. All these persons died in faith. They were not yet in possessions of the things promised, but had seen them far ahead and hailed them and confessed themselves no more than strangers or passing travelers on the earth. We do not yet have the resurrection of our bodies. We do not yet have the return of the Lord Jesus. So we look to these things far ahead and we are longing and confessing ourselves no more than strangers or travelers. Those who use language like this show plainly they're looking for a country not of their own. If their hearts had been in the country they had left, they would have found opportunity to return. Instead, we find them longing for a better country. I mean the heavenly one. That is why God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has a city ready for them. The way we operate in Spain in a place that is not open to the gospel is that we attempt to build bridges of trust that can stand the weight of truth. And we live as resident aliens, literally, aware that we have a priestly calling to live exemplary lives and to talk well about God to all that we meet. And the Holy Spirit works from there. That's our calling. That's our purpose. If we live as if we are resident aliens and expatriates. So I call you to that today. All of us need to live that way to accomplish God's purposes in his world.